Hello, and welcome to the In Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Hamilton. So this is the second week of the month, which means we will be discussing a psalm from the Bible. And since this is the very first one, I'm going to read the introduction that I wrote up as far as why I chose to um, use the second week of the month as looking at a psalm. By extension, that means giving praise and thanksgiving to God. A lot of the psalms usually have a lot of God's attributes on display and or the psalmist will be explicitly stating some of God's attributes and character traits. And we can see how God works in the life of the psalmist. And we can take those things and learn from them of who God is. And we can also give thanks and praise to him for those qualities. So this is the second episode of the month, which means that we'll be reading a psalm, talking a little bit about it, seeing what attributes of God we might see in it, and give praise and thanksgiving to God. I love the Psalms. We learn a lot about God in them. We also have prayers written out and modeled for us. And the Psalms deal with things from giving highest praise in beautiful language to working through troubles and struggles, even despairing of life. They are relatable and comforting in many ways. They also bring immense joy, so much so before that I have been moved to tears and it felt like joy and praise wanted to burst from my chest. John Calvin said, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Psalms can be used as prayers or some of the words and phrases can be used in prayer. Being very transparent here, I struggle with praying, making time to pray, what to pray for, and what to say. I know there's no special formula or words to say, and I know we can pray anytime and are supposed to be in unceasing prayer, or at least an attitude of unceasing prayer. I have leaned on the Psalms for words to say, especially during very difficult challenges. I'd like to try closing these episodes with prayer modeled from the psalm that we read. I also need to give more praise to God and be more conscientious of things to give thanks for. So I would like to make note of attributes to praise God for and things to thank him for that we see in the psalm that we read for each week. Another way the psalms have been used is in singing. Many people in churches throughout history have sung the psalms. There is a songbook called the Psalter, which has music set for each psalm. I have one, but since I'm not musically gifted, I can't play, sing, or read what the tune would be. (laughs) There are more modern singers and bands that have also made the psalms into their song lyrics. The Psalter was sung as far back as the French Reformation in the mid-16th century. Those Protestants loved the Psalms and even sang them eagerly as they were were about to be martyred. Next week, we will look at a couple martyrs and their stories. If you think about going through horrible persecution and then to be put to death for your faith in Jesus, what better way to stand strong than to be singing the words of the Psalms? 
It reminds me of Paul and Silas in Acts 16, where they're in prison and they start singing hymns. Maybe some of them were even psalms. In Colossians 3.16, Paul wrote, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. The psalms, most importantly, even if not explicitly, point us toward Christ and his saving and redemptive work for us. I'd like to make note of when we see the gospel and Jesus in the psalms, explicitly or implicitly. Psalm 51 is one of my favorites and is an example of the gospel and our repentance and being made new. Robert Godfrey, in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, says, Like all great poetry, the psalms are like a mine with ever new depths to reach and ever more gold to find. And that is so true. I see and learn more and more every time I read out of the Psalms. So let's dive in. Today we're going to look at Psalm 90. I chose to start with Psalm 90 for a few reasons. One is that it is the beginning of book four of the Psalms. If you open your Bible and look at Psalms, flip through it, you will see there are certain sections that will be divided into books. So it has five books in the Psalms. So Psalm 90 starts book four. And just because I am who I am, I like to start at the beginning of things and work through. So this isn't the total beginning with Psalm one, but that leads me to the next reason that I started with book four of the Psalms is because books four and five are where, for the most part, the Psalms of Lament are before that. And so books four and five are more looking ahead at Christ and the coming kingdom and his redemptive work. And they seem to give more praise and thanksgiving. So I just wanted to focus a little bit more in that direction for right now. Also, because I'm reading through the Bible again and just got done with the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, and Psalm 90 is written by Moses. And I believe this is the only psalm that credit is given to Moses that he wrote. I recently read it in the Bible reading plan since I'm going in chronological order. I also see a lot of God's attributes on display here in this psalm. I also see the gospel message in this psalm. And it's one where we know the context since Moses was writing it. And he was leading the Israelites out of Egypt in slavery and through the wilderness for 40 years, going around the wilderness and all their struggles and you know, all of the explanation in the Old Testament of how much the Israelites were stiff-necked people. They would say something, you know, affirm something with their lips in one way and then turn right around and disobey God or seem to forget what he said. So having all of that background, the whole story, the narrative of what was going on at the time that Moses would have written this psalm, just gives it a better understanding and richer meaning. And so 
even though this was written by Moses a really, really long time ago, during that time of wandering in the wilderness, trying to lead the Israelites, we can still see ways that God worked and displayed his character. And we can see how maybe through our own struggles that we've had in our life would be sort of equivalent in a way to the Israelites wandering, wandering in the wilderness and being stiff-necked, um, grumbling and complaining, all of that kind of stuff that we see in our own lives. And yet we can go on and um, praise God for his attributes and what he's done, ways he's worked in our lives just like how he was working with the Israelites. I know we need to be careful not to put ourselves into every single passage of the Bible. For example, a good one that a lot of people say is, you are not David and your problem is not Goliath. And, you know, the whole analogy with David and Goliath that people try to read into themselves being David and, you know, overcoming their problems somehow. We need to be careful not to read the Bible in that way, not to eisegete the text. But I think the Psalms is one place where we can draw some parallels. And yet we see the character of God that never changes. And we still give thanks and praise. We can still... Um, use some of the prayers of lament to to give words to our feelings and maybe ways that we would like to see God work in our lives. So they are meant to be used by us in that way. So I hope that makes sense. I just wanted to explain that little caveat there. Jumping in then to the actual psalm, I'm going to read Psalm 90 in its entirety. And then I'm going to outline the basic structure of the psalm and list the attributes of God that we see, have a little discussion about the psalm overall and where we see the gospel, and then we will close in prayer. So this is Psalm 90. It is titled, From Everlasting to Everlasting, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust. You say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So that's it for Psalm 90. It is 17 verses. Verses 1 through 2 are an affirmation of faith in the Lord as the eternal refuge of his people. Verses 3 through 11 is a lament of the pain and trouble of human existence and how that looks in a fallen sinful world. And then verses 12 through 17 offers up a series of requests. So the attributes of God that we see in this psalm from verses 1 through 2, God is our dwelling place and our refuge. God is eternal. He is self-existent. And he is the creator. From verses 3 through 11, we see God is outside of time. He is sovereign. He is judge. He has anger and wrath. He is omniscient and all-knowing. And he's powerful. And in verses 12 through 17, God is wisdom. He is our satisfaction and fulfiller. He is steadfast love. He is joy. He is our redeemer and restorer. And he is with us and faithful. So by the psalm beginning, say that, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. By the psalmist, who is Moses here, saying that God is our dwelling place and our refuge and that he is eternal and self-existent and the creator of all. He is laying the groundwork that God himself is our foundation of hope. It shouldn't be anything that is earthly that we could look to on earth, any person or anything. So that is very important to always keep in mind. And by the end, when we are seeing that God is with us and he is faithful, we see the basis of that foundation being a sure, solid thing. It's not some hope that is just in a fairy tale way, like, I just hope that such and such happens. It is a solid, sure knowing. And then moving on to the lament section, we see that our human lives are just but a wisp of time compared to eternity and that we see God is outside of time. So it's like a different dimension and it's hard to wrap our minds around. But that is one of the great things about God and that he is omnipresent and omniscient and again that he's eternal. In verse 8, It says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So that is explicitly showing God's omniscience, that he is all-knowing. He knows everything that happens 
and every sin, everything that is even in your heart. That includes our secret sins that people think they can hide, such as envy or hatred or lust. But with God, there are no secrets. He knows already. And we see in this section that God has anger and wrath and that he is the judge. So he is angry about the sins that everybody commits. He has wrath to be poured out for those sins. And so this is where we start seeing the gospel, where we see our human depravity, that we are all sinful, and that God has this anger and wrath towards that sin. And so with verse 11, where Moses says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That is pointing towards Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice or atonement for our sins. Because Moses is basically saying, how is your anger and wrath going to be appeased? Since we all have sin and it causes you this anger, how is that going to be fixed? You know, how can the chasm be bridged, if you will? Who or how is that going to be taken care of? My Reformation Study Bible says in the notes um, under verse 11, Only Jesus Christ, who drank the full cup of God's wrath for sinners, knows the full power of death. So God's answer to how that anger and wrath would be taken care of and how the chasm between us and God because of that sin is going to be fixed is going to be sending his son, Jesus Christ, to bear those sins, our sins, on the cross and shed his blood for an atonement and to impute his righteousness upon us. So Moses is looking forward to that. Even though he might not know expressly what is going to happen, he is at least aware of it and posing that question. And his faith is in the future you know, at his time in history, his faith is looking forward to the future, having faith and knowing that God will provide that atonement that is needed. And then we go to the last section of the Psalm, verses 12 to 17, where Moses is offering up a series of requests. So the first request is to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. And he knows that God is wisdom. He is the source of wisdom. So we need to turn to God to get that wisdom. And then verse 13, just to have a little discussion on this, it says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. So when I first read that verse, Return, O Lord, how long? From our point in history, we can sort of gloss over that and just look at it from our angle of Jesus' second coming, saying, like, return, O Lord, and how long? Like, how long are we going to wait until you're coming back? But if you think about the context, this is Moses' writing. It is way before Jesus was even born. And so how would he be saying, return, O Lord, and how long? Like he wouldn't be saying that from our perspective. So I did a little bit more digging on that verse. 
And basically, Moses is writing this at a time when they are having some struggles and suffering. They're wandering in the wilderness and grumbling, complaining, being stiff-necked, all the stuff that I said before. And so Moses here is saying, by the return, O Lord, he's feeling as if the Lord has maybe turned his back on them for a short time. Or I don't want to say abandoned because I don't think that Moses would feel like the Lord completely abandoned them. But just saying, like, come back to us. We need your presence. And then the how long part is just asking God, like, how long are we going to be suffering? Or are we going to be in the wilderness wandering around aimlessly? Or at least it felt like aimlessly. In reality, their wanderings were all led by God and they were for a purpose. So he's just asking how long are we going to be wandering around? Are we going to be suffering? Um, are we going to be waiting until your promise is fulfilled? till we get to the promised land and all of that. But much in the same way, even though that is the actual context of what Moses was meaning when he wrote those words. I think we can also say it from our perspective in history, saying, return, O Lord. You know, we're waiting for him, longing for him to come back and to come soon. And how long? You know, just asking how long do we have to stay here in this fallen sinful world, suffering with whatever it is that's happening in our lives or that we even see happening in the world, and all the craziness and the politics and with uh, COVID and all of this stuff that's just happening. And it just seems like, how long, oh Lord, are you going to let this go like this? And how long is enough enough? And I just want to get out of here, you know. I want to get to heaven. I want to get to the promised land, which is heaven and the new earth. And um, that we can say those words in a prayer to mean, you know, from our perspective at the same time. So then Moses asked God to pity them. And then he says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So just a couple things here. I wanted to point out that the use of steadfast love throughout the Bible is pointing to God's covenant with his people. Whenever you see the steadfast love phrase. So it is with God's steadfast love that he made the covenant with Abraham for the Israelites and then other peoples from other nations, the Gentiles, to become his children. And it also denotes a faithfulness because it's steadfast. So God is faithful and he will fulfill all of his promises. And he makes a way from it for us. He redeems us and restores us to himself. And then the phrase used in the morning, uh, most likely it wasn't meaning literally the next morning. But in poetry, when the imagery is used of you know, nighttime, darkness, winter, any of that is usually a reflection of feeling depressed or grieving or going through struggles and trials, something like that. And then on the flip side, when you see things like morning and light, 
or springtime imagery, it is normally reflecting joy, happiness, delight, or that the trouble has passed or been solved, that the depression or anxiety has lifted. And so here it would be showing that God is redeeming and restoring and fulfilling his promises so that God is our satisfier and our fulfiller and that there will be a mourning, not mourning as in grief, but as in a new day where we will experience God's steadfast love, the fulfillment of his covenant, which is the fulfillment of his promises in that we'll be with him. We will be glorified and perfect. There will be no more sin, crying, shame, guilt, any of that. No more suffering, no more trials. Everything will be perfect. And so knowing that that is being fulfilled, we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So even though we might go through and will definitely go through trials and struggles in this life, we can hold on to God's steadfast love, his promise, and what was done for us through Jesus. And remembering all of that, we can, on some level, always rejoice. Not that we embrace our sufferings or are always joyful and denying reality, but that we can somewhere in our heart hold on to that hope and just have a knowing that it is coming to pass and in that there can be an element of rejoicing. And then sometimes there is when everything is going great and awesome and, you know, rejoicing comes so naturally and easily We could just give praise and thanks just almost without thinking. And so life kind of goes through those cycles, I think. So Moses goes on to say, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. So again, that would be living here on this fallen sinful earth. They saw evil in the peoples who lived in the lands around them and they also were having their struggles in the wilderness. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So the work that Moses would be referring to here is God's work of redemption and restoration and that is ultimately the way God is always working throughout history is working to restore and redeem to the end of fulfilling that promise. And then he says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. You establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So here, the favor of the Lord to be upon us, that is showing the blessing of having God's presence with them. So I know in today's charismatic type culture, some people are referring to the favor of the Lord as if it is some supernatural power that is placed upon them or a person to where they can have special spiritual gifts or revelations or whatever. That is not what we are talking about here. That's really nothing that you see in scripture. The favor of the Lord is just simply the blessing of God's presence with us. So we know that he is here and with us, that he is in us by the Holy Spirit. 
and there's no like extra favor upon one person more than another if they're both children of God. Okay, they have the presence of God and that in itself is the ultimate blessing. And then for the establish the work of our hands, my uh, study Bible says, wanderers in the wilderness may leave no monuments, but God can give eternal significance to the deeds of hands that serve him. So that's basically it, that God gives eternal significance to the deeds of our hands. And again, that would be the ultimate purpose for our lives on earth, that the work of our hands would have eternal significance. So God's work is that he is working to restore and redeem, fulfilling his promise in the covenant and what was done for us through the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, which is the gospel message. And our work, the work of our hands then, is to have eternal significance with bringing glory to God and sharing that gospel message, bringing others to Christ. So Moses in this psalm really puts the Christian life together in a nutshell, very eloquently, I would say, and shows the purpose of everything that is going on here um, on the earth, from our struggles and joys to showing God and his character and covenant and the gospel message. So now let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you that you are our dwelling place and our refuge. You keep us safe under your wings. We thank you that you are eternal and self-existent, that you, you are from everlasting to everlasting. You were not made by anyone or anything else. You have always existed and always will exist. We thank you for being our creator, for creating us and humanity in your image, and for creating the whole earth, all of the animals, and the plants and trees, the beauty that we see around us. We thank you that you are outside of time, so that you are not bound by that time constraint like we are, and that means you can see all and know all and be everywhere all at once. We thank you for your sovereignty, that you are in control of everything that is happening on the earth, every molecule, and it's all working for your good. We thank you for being our judge, because you will judge rightly and justly. We thank you even for your anger and your wrath. Those are things that are not pretty to think about. They're not nice and lovey-dovey, but we thank you for those attributes of yours, showing us that there's a problem, meaning sin, and that we need reconciled to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you're omniscient, meaning all-knowing, that you know even our hidden sins, and that we should repent of those sins, even though you know about them, we should still come and ask forgiveness and be restored to you and in right relationship with you. And we should turn from those sins and feel a part of the grief and the pain that it caused you. But then having thanks that you made a way for those sins to be paid for. 
and helping us to further realize that nothing is hidden from you. So we should turn to you when we are first tempted with those sins and ask you for help in overcoming those sins and turning away from the temptation. We thank you for your power and your might that we realize that you have the power to create and to destroy and that you can do anything at all that you wish. We thank you for your wisdom and that you share some of that wisdom with us and that we should ask for wisdom that comes from you, from your word. We thank you for imparting some of your wisdom in your word for us so that we would have that revealed knowledge to look to for guidance. We thank you that you are our satisfaction and our fulfiller, that you are ultimately what we need that will satisfy us and it will be more than anything else on the earth, whether it's human or not, um, but that we look to you to be fulfilled above anything else that is created in the whole universe. We thank you for your steadfast love. Steadfast meaning you're faithful. We thank you for your faithfulness because without your faithfulness, we couldn't be faithful on our own. And, and just that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for our sins and impute his righteousness to us and that you restore our relationship and look towards a perfect heaven and earth one day where we will dwell with you directly. And we thank you for the covenant that you made with us originally with Abraham and the Israelites and extending forward on through us as your children. We thank you for your joy that you give us that words cannot express and the hope that is found in you. We thank you for being our redeemer and restorer because without you, there would be no hope of redemption. There would be nothing. And it is truly a remarkable thing that you created us and have given us your word to live by, that you sent your son for us and looking forward to our future. We thank you for being with us, that you are a real live God who is mighty and awesome and powerful and who is actually with us, living with us, having relationship with us, having a revealed written word for us like no other possible God or um, other religions, deities, or anything could possibly do because you are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and you are with us. And we thank you so much for all of that. And so, dear Lord, just like Moses wrote, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Help us to go out and to share the gospel, the good news with others and to, to give significance to the deeds of our hands. We ask all this in your precious holy name. Amen.
Okay, so that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And this podcast is part of the Christian Podcast community. If you're looking for more great podcasts, please visit podcast.strivingforeternity.org slash shows. And there you'll see a whole bunch of podcasts listed. There's some for women, some for men, for parenting, about entertainment, current events, apologetics, and lots of theology. So check out some of those wonderful shows. If you'd like to get in touch, we can connect in the following ways. My blog is at www.kristen-hamilton.com. Check out the, the Facebook page. The public page is facebook.com slash in reverence of God. Email in all wonder podcast at gmail.com. Next time, we are going to be looking at a couple of the martyr stories. We will do Stephen, who's in the New Testament of the Bible, um, somebody named Runkin, and somebody named Gul Masi. I'm not sure if I say that correctly, but we will go ahead with it. And keep reading your Bible and look for God's attributes. Look for verses that cause you to confess any sins. And look for ways that you can praise God for who he is and what he's done.